Good morning. Hola, I should say. I um, spent last week in Mexico, and it is great to be back with you in all three dimensions here this morning. And um, I think Aaron snuck off, but just wanted to publicly say thank you to him for the work that he did on the video last week. He's amazing. Uh, he's amazing. So if you're new with us, let me catch you up. We are in a series that we've entitled Four Days That Changed the World. And that's not some sort of spiritual religious hyperbole. This is the most talked about week, most written about week, most debated week in the history of the cosmos. That on Sunday, when Jesus entered Palm Sunday, which is actually what we celebrate today, we're not in that text, but uh, Jesus entered into the streets of Jerusalem. You start a clock ticking from there one week, and it's about 0.06% of Jesus' life, and it's roughly 33% of the gospel narratives. Do you think they thought this was important? Just a little bit. So two weeks ago, we talked about what happened on Thursday. And on Thursday, Jesus reimagined for us and taught us what love really looks like, that he shed his outer garment, got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet as this picture of what you do when you have power. You don't use it to oppress people and keep people down. You actually leverage your power to lift others up. Last week, we saw that on the cross, on Friday, Jesus um, offers us forgiveness, that he takes on our forsakenness, and that he says, it's finished. You're reunited with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God Almighty. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to hop online and watch that video if you can, and if you can't, just listen to it, that's fine too, but I'd encourage you to get caught up. But today, Saturday... What happened on that in-between day? That day when, in between, when Jesus gives his life on the cross for an atonement for sin, and the day on Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week, spoiler alert, he walks out of the grave. But is Saturday just some sort of weird intermission? I mean, is this the, the halftime show where, you know, Bruno Mars or Justin Timberlake or Janet or Michael Jackson pop out and... Do a little ditty. What, what actually happens on Saturday? Well, luckily for you, this has been debated for roughly 2,000 years, but I'm going to solve all of our problems this morning. So, we uh, went to Mexico, as I mentioned, and there was one day when it was really, really windy. And uh, walking along the beach, just getting buffeted by the wind. I mean, we were suffering for the Lord that day. And, um, but then when you dive, dove into the water, what happens? 
just go silent, right? The, the waves that are rolling up top and the wind that's blowing, you go, you go underneath and it's just silent. I think the best way to picture what happened on Saturday is to flip that image. That on earth, it's silent. Jesus has died. His life is over. He's been carried to a, a borrowed tomb. His followers mourn and assume that this following of Jesus, a discipleship, apprenticed to his way of life, is over. But underneath, something else is going on. The waves are rolling, the wind is blowing, and I propose to you that there's a battle that's waging. What happened on Saturday? Where was Jesus on Saturday? Admittedly, this is going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching this morning. If you have your um, outline, I'd encourage you just to write down the verses that we referenced today, and it may be helpful for you to go back and study them just to see if you think I'm right. What happened on Saturday? Where, where was Jesus on Saturday? Let me answer first where he wasn't. He was not in heaven. He was not in heaven. Um, uh, the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, he says, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. My, my ascension hasn't happened yet. Where, where, where wasn't Jesus? Jesus was not in heaven. Where wasn't Jesus? Jesus was not in hell. He wasn't in hell um, because no one's in hell yet. Even today, no one's in hell yet. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, towards the end of the story, it says this, and then death and Hades, we'll talk about that in a moment, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. This is where we start to learn more about what happens when people go to hell. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So where was Jesus? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Flip over with me or open your Bible if you have one to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We typically think in terms when we talk about the afterlife, we typically think in terms of heaven and hell. I'd like to propose to you that that's an incomplete way of thinking about what happens when people die. I'd like to propose to you that it wasn't the way that Jesus talked about what happened when people die. Okay, so admittedly, this is going to mess with us a little bit, but will you just go on uh, Mr. Paulson's wild ride for this morning, okay? And then step back and go, is he right? Is this what the Bible says? So we typically think heaven and hell. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, Jesus is going to tell a story, and his story is going to illustrate what happens when people die. Then there was, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Anybody have KJV, King James Version with him? That it would say Abraham's bosom. 
Abraham's bosom. Which, just, just side note, is n- not heaven. How do we know that? If it were, Jesus would have said that. It's not heaven. He carries him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So let's just stop right there. Here's the pictures that Jesus paints. That there is uh, two are two people, and they both die. One of them goes to Abraham's side. The other goes to where did you catch it? Hades. Now, unfortunately, some translations will translate that word Hades as hell. It's a bad translation. In my opinion, they should have just left it because Hades is different than hell. He goes to Hades, and what do they do? They They're able to communicate back and forth. So there's something else going on than just heaven and hell. There's actually this other place, this third place that we would call Sheol or Hades. And the scriptures use this term a number of times. Sheol is the Hebrew word that is translated in the Greek is the word Hades. It's the quote-unquote underworld. It's the place of the dead. Okay, anybody getting messed with a little bit yet? Okay, and so in Hades or Sheol, it appears, this is from other scripture, but specifically Luke chapter 16, that there's two sort of sections or compartments within the same general place. One section is for the righteous, this is for, um, for Lazarus. This is where Lazarus is. There's other terminology that the scriptures use to describe this place. It's, it's Sheol, where the righteous go, that side, or Abraham's bosom, or what's the last one? Paradise. Okay, file that away. Keep that in mind. That's really important, okay? Or where the unrighteous go. This is where the rich man was. But they're both in Hades, And this was a very generic term for the place of the dead that they used all throughout the Old Testament to talk about where people go when they die. Okay, so where was Jesus on Saturday? Yeah, he he was not in hell and he was not in heaven. He was actually, I think, in Hades. But, but is that what the Bible says? Because who cares what Paulson thinks? Is that what the Bible says? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. He's telling this story, this parable, um, to people who want a sign from him. They, they want to know, all right, we want to know that you're God. We want to we sign. And he goes, listen, no sign is going to be given to you except that of the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is Matthew chapter 12, and here's verse 40. Here's what he says. For Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in where? The heart of the earth. That doesn't help us a whole lot just yet, okay? What does he mean by that? Well, Peter, in the sermon that he gives after Pentecost, is going to unpack this idea a little bit more. So if you flip over to Acts chapter 2, 
verse 31. This is in a section, a much longer section, where uh, Peter's actually referencing Psalm 16. And here's what he says. He says, seeing what to come, he, and, and he here is David writing in Psalm 16, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not, what, abandoned. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say he didn't go. He just says he didn't stay there. He was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Now, if you were to go to Psalm 16 and look at it, what does it say? He was not abandoned to Sheol. In the Greek, in the New Testament, he was not abandoned to Hades. He was there, he just didn't stay there. Nor did his body see decay. I think Acts chapter 2, verse 31, or, or 25 through 31, is probably the clearest picture of what we see happening on Saturday. But to muddy the waters a little bit, you can throw in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. Some of the most debated and talked about passages in all of Scripture. Flip there if you want. Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, talking about the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Raise your hand if you think that's great news. He brings you to God. A reference to last week, he doesn't bring God to you. He brings you to God. Because the offense is in us, not in God. Okay. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. <laughs> what? Let me flip over one more chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now what? Dead. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. Now, we'd have to go on a completely other tangent in order to say what exactly happened here, and I would need a lot more time to study that, okay? So, here's what we're going to say about it this morning. I think what these passages suggest is that on Saturday, not only does Jesus descend into Hades, as it said in um, Psalm chapter 16 and Acts chapter 2, but that he went there with an explicit purpose to proclaim or announce good news. Good news. In the Greek, it's the word kerygma. It's a, a proclamation of that which is true. Not necessarily to elicit any sort of response, but just to declare it. So the question you might be asking is, well, that's really interesting, Paulson, but why didn't he go to heaven? Why, 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 why didn't he go to, to hell? Well, here, or you might be asking, when in the world did people start going to heaven? If before we had these two different compartments of Sheol or Hades, one for the righteous, one for the unrighteous, when did people start going to heaven? It's a great question. And Jesus will say in John chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, how many people are you going? You're messing with me, Paulson. When did people start going to heaven? 
Ephesians chapter 4 would say it like this. Quoting from Psalm 68, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. When Jesus ascends, what does he do? Well, I think what happens, I think what the scriptures are teaching is that when he ascends to heaven, after he's resurrected and lives on earth and ascends to heaven, I think what Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 say, at that point in time, the righteous portion of Sheol or Hades or Abraham's bosom or paradise is actually reunited with heaven. It's why the picture of um, heaven in Isaiah chapter 6 doesn't include people, but in Revelation chapter 4, 5, and 6, it does. Because it's post-ascension. I think that's when it happens. So Paul can write to the church at Corinth, listen, when we are absent from the body, we are what? Present with the Lord. Yeah, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't have said that before the ascension. He, he would have said that we're in paradise, or we're in Abraham's bosom, or we're in the righteous part of Sheol. So What's the current reality? So this is a little bit, side note, a little bit tangential, but I think it's important. What's the current reality? If it's not heaven and hell, what is the current reality of people who have died? Um, well, it's, there's two options, heaven and Hades. And both of these places are temporary. They're both temporary. They will not last forever in this sense. They're both awaiting what? Resurrection. They're both awaiting resurrection. Now, those in heaven, the, the righteous, those who have followed Jesus, who have surrendered to his love, who, have, who are disciples walking with him, longing for him, they will be resurrected to new heaven and new earth. Okay, so spoiler alert, Jesus walks out of the grave. Another spoiler alert, you will one day too. That's the hope of every early follower of Christ. It's not heaven. That heaven wasn't their hope. Resurrection was their hope. And people in Hades are also waiting for resurrection, but not to new heaven and new earth, but to hell or a second death is what the scriptures would technically call this, or separation from God. So when the th Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. It's entirely possible, isn't it? Not, not today you will be with me in heaven because Jesus didn't go there yet. He said that in John chapter 20. But today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in the section of Hades that's for the righteous. Abraham's bosom, paradise. And even there, I will be able to preach, to proclaim, to enter into the darkest regions of what some would call the netherworld. If you don't do that with that verse, what do you do with it? Right? So does that make sense? Great. Let's close in prayer. So what does the scripture say? What, what, is, what does history say? What, 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 did, what did followers of Christ, how have they wrestled with this throughout the 2,000 years that 
we've been around as a, as a people. It was, it was unanimously undisputed amongst the early church that Christ descended. Okay? And you'll read in places that, well, it wasn't in the earliest creed that he descended into hell. Absolutely 100% right. They did not say that in 180 or 200 when they originally wrote the creed. That popped in around 320 when somebody was looking at the Latin and looked at the word for death and looked at the word for hell, and they were so similar that they chose hell instead of death. That happened in 390. wasn't solidified until 650 that the creed said he descended into hell. Earlier, though, the earlier creed said he descended to the dead. And I think that's technically more accurate. But if you go and even look at the Westminster Catechism, question 50 will say this, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing into the state of the dead under the power of death until the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, quote, he descended into hell. But they're talking about the dead. They're talking about Hades. They're talking about Sheol. If you look through the ages, there's some fascinating um, artistic renditions of this event. As you can imagine, um, it, it's, it, it needs some picture, needs some illusion in order to talk adequately about it. This is the most famous piece. It's called the Anastasis Icon. Will you say that with me? Anastasis icon. Anastasis in Greek means resurrection, but really this is a descent into the dead. And what you see here is really interesting and complex, but you see Jesus who is reaching for, any guesses who he's reaching for? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. That, that's who the, the, the iconographer, that, that's how he depicts it, reaching for Adam and Eve to bring them out of Sheol, and is going to take them into heaven. Um, underneath him, you see death or Satan depicted and defeated with a chain around his neck and around his hands, and you see all sorts of keys and locks floating around in this netherworld, if you will. Keep that in mind. That'll be important at the very end. But really interesting picture of what they thought happened on Holy Saturday. Um, nearly all of the reformers would say, yeah, Christ descended. We don't want to say what happened when he did, but they would have agreed he did descend. And John Calvin said it maybe most succinctly like this. If Holy Saturday is left out, much of the benefit of Christ's death will be lost. The question is, why? Well, okay, so maybe you agree. Christ descended to the dead, to, to Hades, to Sheol. But why does it matter for our lives? I mean, who, who cares? <laughs> well, I, I think you should care, and I, and, and, I, and I should care, because here's the reality, friends, is that Jesus' descent to the dead gives you and I, humanity, confidence for life. His descent to the dead is intended to stir up a confidence in us. Why? Why? 
Well, whether you picture it as hell or whether you picture it as Hades, I think Hades is probably more accurate, but we have more pictures in our mind that go along with hell, thanks to the Catholic Church trying to raise money in order to fund their basilicas, okay? So we have all this imagery that goes along with hell, but when we think about Hades, we don't have a whole lot of imagery that goes along. We could look at the rich man and the Lazarus and rich man story and know that it's not exactly, the unrighteous place of Hades is not exactly a place that we'd want to go to. Agreed? So what does Jesus do when he enters into that place? Well, he says to you and to me, if your life is dark, if you've walked through pain, if you've seen suffering, if you've felt abandonment, if you've been abused, the darkest things you've seen, he looks you in the eye and he says, I've been there. I've been there. I don't know about you, I get the chance to talk to a lot of people, and most of the people who wrestle with belief in God, they have this question that underlines every other question. Where is God when? Where is God in suffering? Where was God during the Holocaust? Where was God when absolute atrocities took place? Because it seems like he's just silent. And what the doctrine of the descent into the dead says to you and to me is, listen, we don't have all of the answers to the questions of why, but we do know this, that Christianity's answer to that question is God enters into that with us. He is not distant from it. He's not ambivalent to it. When he descends to the dead, to hell, to Hades, however you want to look at it, he looks death in the eye and he speaks gospel truth over it. He looks evil in the eye and he speaks the word of God into it. See, the reality is that our world feels and seems broken and it is. If you haven't wrestled with that, you aren't watching the news or paying attention to anything going on around us. And it's unhelpful when followers of Jesus offer glib, distant answers to deep and destructive issues going on in our world. And here's the thing, you don't need to answer that way. Your answer can be, I know, I don't know why it happens, but I know my God is in it. Elie Wiesel, the great author and um, survivor of the Holocaust, wrote in one of his books, he said that he was walking past an area where the Nazi guards used to hang prisoners from the gallows. And they would typically choose two men, and then in order to flex their muscles and to prove that they were powerful, they would also choose one child. And they would march him past. And he said one time as he walked past, he looked and the, the two grown men were hanging and they were dead. But the child's rope was still swinging and he was gasping for air. He was, he was too light to hang himself. And he recounts that he heard a voice behind him whisper, where is God? Where is God? And here's what he says. From within, he said, I heard a voice answer. Where is he? 
He's hanging there from the gallows with him. He's, he's entered in. He's descended to the darkest, most horrific, most evil, the thing in your head that you wish you could take back and never have to experience again, Jesus is in it with you and weeps alongside of you. In 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda and the cover of Time magazine was a quote from a missionary and it said this, there are no devils left in hell, the missionary said. They're all in Rwanda. Where was God in Rwanda? Where's God in today? The UN just announced earlier last week that the situation in Syria today is, quote, hell on earth. Where's God? He enters in. He enters into the pain. He doesn't distance himself from it. He enters into it. See, God does not offer Christians a rational, logical, ordered explanation as to why everything in our world happens. He says, I'm entering into the pain and the brokenness with you. With you. I love the way that Fleming Rutledge put it when she said this. In all of religion, only the story of the crucified God can stand up to the challenge of the long history of human wickedness. Jesus is the loving Savior who redemptively enters into our suffering. So we don't need to try to explain away evils. We don't need to try to come up with a quote-unquote reason for it. Have you ever heard somebody do that? It's like, here's the reason that this insane evil thing happened, and behind it they're going, God must have wanted it to happen. Garbage! No, we don't have to answer like that. We can say, no, 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 no. Our God enters into the suffering with us. And from the inside out, he redeems it. He renews it. He restores it. Because he's making all things new. See, what do we learn from the descent? Who cares? Well, we should. Because it says to us that Jesus has solidarity in human suffering. He goes to the deepest, darkest places. That the Bible's answer to evil and suffering isn't always alleviation of it, it's God's presence in it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For you're with me. But, but we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yes? Yes? There's no keep out signs that keep God out. Nothing that's too dark, nothing that's too painful that he doesn't enter into. So we may not be able to answer the question, why do all these evil things happen? But, but look up at me for just a moment. We can answer definitively why we know that one of the reasons they happen is not. Okay, And we know it's not because God doesn't love us. We know that. Why? Well, because he took the nails on Calvary and he descended to the dead on our behalf. So nothing can separate us from 
the love of God. What shall separate us, Paul says? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he's like, I could go on. I'm running out of paper, though. His point is nothing. Not height or death or angels or principalities or anything in all of creation or things to come could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And we can know that because he descends even to the dead. Which begs the question, who does God have solidarity with today? You look around the world, certainly with those who are suffering. Certainly with those in Syria who the UN says this is hell on earth. Certainly with the 8.4 million people in Yemen who are on the verge of starvation. Certainly with the 13 million people in the Democratic Republic of Congo who the UN says just even this week that this is a situation we need to step into. 13 million people. God's not distant from that, friends. He steps right into it. But secondly, you know when um, a preacher's on vacation and they don't exactly know what they're going to say when they leave and need to get their outline in, they just leave real long blanks in order for you to fill in. Secondly, though, and there is a secondly, what does Jesus do when he enters into the dead? Now, here's what we need to understand really quick, and we're running out of time. But our understanding of the world, our cosmology, if you will, is typically pretty flat. That we, we think, well, what you see is what? What you see is what you get. We have a very Western materialistic view of the world. The scriptures do not paint that picture of the world that we live in. This is a spiritual world that we live in. And there, are, there is good and there is bad. Yes? There's good and there's evil. And we live in a time and a place where those two ideas are eroding beneath our feet, but we all intrinsically know it. Some things are good and some things are bad. Some things allow for human flourishing and some things allow for the flourishing for a few at the expense of many. And what the scriptures teach is not only that there's good and that there's bad, but that there are powers with a capital P behind the goodness and the badness of the world that we live in. We would call these cosmic powers, cosmic powers of evil, cosmic powers of sin, cosmic powers of death. So what does Jesus do when he enters into the dead? He's not only conquering the event of death, but he is going to conquer the power of death. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, here's what it says. This is awesome. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. What does Jesus do when he descends into the dead? He, well, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the, son, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, after forgiving us, it says he, having disarmed the powers and authorities. These are 
the cosmic powers of sin and death and all of his friends. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. What's going on in the descent to the dead? Well, N.T. Wright would say it like this. The real enemy, after all, was not Rome, but the powers of evil that stood behind human arrogance and violence, powers of evil with which Israel's leaders had fatally colluded. Cyril of Alexandria in the 4th and 5th century would write it like this. If Christ had not died for us, we should not have been saved. And if he had not gone down among the dead, death's cruel empire would never have been shattered. What does Jesus go down to the dead in order to do? Punch death in the face, the power of death, and then walk out of the grave one day later, crashing death's party. That's what happens. That's what happens. So here we say it like this. That not only does Jesus have solidarity in suffering, but that he has conquered cosmic evil. When Jesus comes and declares that the kingdom of God is here, this is not a nicety. He does not get high fives. He puts the enemy on notice. Your time is limited. Sin, death, evil, and all of its friends have been invaded. The prince and power of this air is on blast from the kingdom of heaven because he's coming to redeem, restore, and renew his good but broken world that he deeply and dearly loves. He comes preaching the kingdom of God. Look up at me for a second. This is a declaration of cosmic war. That's what's going on. You wonder why like every single superhero movie has the same plot line? Essentially, it's good against evil. And who's going to triumph? Hero's journey, underneath it all, it's, 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 is good going to win out? Come on, please, right? Why is it the story we tell? It's the story that the cosmos are telling. So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesians, in Ephesus, he says, listen, your battle is not against flesh and blood. And you know what? That's not who our battle's against, and that's not who God's battle was against either. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it's those that he conquers. If you're like me, you're going, well, if in your descent to the dead you punched death in the throat, well, then why do people still die? And why does evil still happen? And why does our world still look the way that it looks? Um, it's the difference between being elected and being inaugurated. There's a time period in between. The victory is sure. He is on the throne. He does reign. Right now, there's competition between the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of God. One day, there will be no more competition. The kingdom of God will win out. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 
it'd be like, it's like watching a Bronco game that you've DVR'd and you already know that they win. Yeah. And you're still sort of on the edge of your seat going, well, uh, the, so, so the, they won, so the Broncos have a quarterback. That's amazing, number one, but no, I'm just kidding. So, so you know they win, but you're still watching the game. How does this defeated enemy work? Um, well, here's a few ways. He works in encouraging people to hold on to bitterness and not forgive. This is the defeated enemy at work. Forgive so you don't give the devil a foothold, Paul will say. How does he work? Well, he works through planting thoughts in your mind. So Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. How does he work? Well, he causes us to get off of the gospel. So Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 6, stand firm three times in the most prolific passage in the New Testament about spiritual warfare. Paul says, just stand. Stand in the gospel. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, 1 Peter chapter 5. You read that and go, oh my goodness, that's, that's nerve-wracking. And then you read the solution to it. Stand firm in the faith. Like, wait, that's, that's how we fight this battle? Yeah, that's how we fight this battle. The enemy is already defeated. Just tell him. He says that he's the accuser of the brethren, so we stand firmly planted in truth. And I just want to remind you today that greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So in Revelation chapter 1, and we'll land the plane here. Revelation chapter 1. John records this about Jesus. This is just awesome. And, and at, let this inform all that we've talked about up until this point and then send us forward. When I saw him, John says, talking about Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Maybe you need to hear him say that to you today. Do not, do not be afraid. And listen to why we don't have to be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to what? Death and Hades. And if Jesus holds the keys, let him take the wheel. The truth of the matter, friends, though this world with devil, devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. On the cross, Jesus forgave our sins. In his descent, he conquers death and enters into solidarity with human suffering. And in his resurrection, he purchases new life. Don't miss next week. Let's close with that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Um, throughout our time in this series, we've been writing after the messages on these sort of st stained glass window 
type things. And um, I want to ask us to do that again. And there's two things you could write on these. And I'd love, if you're able to get up and get out of your seat, I'd love for you to come up during this song and write on this. Don't think this is for somebody else. This is for you, okay? Enter in, enter in. Two things you could write. One, Jesus, I need to know you're in with me in this situation. And you don't have to write any sort of long paragraph, but just, I just need to know you're with me in this situation, this health concern that you're in, me, in it with me. This situation with our kids that you're, you're in it with me. This depression, I need to know that you're in it with me. This loneliness, I need to know you're in it with me. Or maybe it's an area that you just need to say, Jesus, I need to taste your victory. Or I have tasted your victory. Would you come during this last song that we're going to sing together and just write up there one word, maybe two, but let's use this time to respond to what God would do in our hearts. Lord, thank you for being a God who descends to the darkness, to the pain, to the questions, to the doubts, and also being a God who ascends and who invites your creation to ascend along with you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you come forward?